In our previous podcast, we went over the five pillars of cybersecurity, which was essentially a way to categorize and group the topics and technologies a prospective cybersecurity professional would need to know to break into the industry. In today's podcast, I want to take it a step further and review precisely how to study technology. And this podcast could actually be leveraged by anyone who's attempting to learn something new, be it a law school student attempting to learn contracts law to someone who's learning architecture diagrams and wants to build bridges. But today's podcast is all about focused on how to learn. Let's go. Hello and welcome to the Laurel Mountain Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Anderson, and on this podcast, we provide information technology and cybersecurity training to aspiring professionals. If learning technology sounds like a great career path to you, but you're uncertain where to begin, this is the place for you. Podcasts like the one you're about to hear are provided each and every Saturday with new content and relevant topics designed explicitly for getting you started in the cybersecurity industry. Today's podcast is entitled, How to Study for Cybersecurity. And before I get started with the information I've prepared for you today, I want to take a brief moment and explain why I believe this particular podcast episode is the most important one I've done thus far, and likely will be the most important episode I record for the foreseeable future. The reasons for this are relatively simple. This particular set of data that I'm about to share with you is not exclusive to cybersecurity. Now, yes, the context, the information, the examples I provide through this particular podcast episode will be cybersecurity related. My goal with Laurel Mountain Cybersecurity is to provide aspiring tech professionals the best opportunity to succeed in the cybersecurity industry. As a collective, that's my goal. But that is not to say what I'm about to teach can't be leveraged in other contexts. You could use it as an attorney. You could use it in any job that you need to learn a new skill with. And I would contend the ability to learn new skills and assimilate information in a quick and efficient way is the most important job skill one can possess in 2022. And the way that that occurs and the way that that happens is through studying and note-taking. And that is what I'm about to teach today. So the very first thing I want to talk about is how human beings learn. So there's three different means upon which human beings learn information. And I want to kind of run them down one by one and explain how they work. The second item on my agenda is each and every one of us likely, and, and I know I've been in this position and I would assume you have on the other end as well, have had a teacher that you just struggle with. They, they just can't capture your interest. They can't teach you what they're trying to teach you. And I want to give some guidance as to why I believe that is the case and how we can resolve it. I want to provide some note-taking strategies so that when you go to take notes, you have a, an efficient way to do it. There's three items on that list and there's one I recommend. The final item on my list is in 2018, I studied for and passed the CISSP exam and I did it in under a month. So I wanna take my strategy for studying and give that to you guys as 
a, a recommendation on how to actually sit down when you're ready to learn a new topic, take pen and paper, and get started. I want to give you guys a strategy on how to do it in a way that you'll retain the vast majority of what you're learning. So without any further ado, let's begin with how human beings assimilate information. So today's first topic is how human beings assimilate information, i.e. how do humans learn? What, what skills or what ways do we learn information? And if you Google this topic, you can get into the weeds very quickly. There is a myriad of information available. Oftentimes it gets very hyper granular and it can get confusing if you read multiple sites because sometimes the definitives of one site aren't the same as another and it can be very confusing. So to simplify this today, for the purposes of this podcast, I've broken down how humans learn into three very easy to understand categories. So category number one is visual learning. And we've all been in a classroom in some phase of our life, be it elementary, middle, high school, where a teacher has a blackboard and they're writing down something to read or to recite or to learn. We've also been in positions where we've seen charts and posters and visual aids, and all of these are designed to reinforce some sort of concept or some sort of, of learning pattern. Uh, in terms of IT, the best example I can provide is white papers. Oftentimes when new technology is published or developed, a white paper may accompany that, which will provide guidance as to how that was developed or what that particular technology is used for. An example of that is currently, as this podcast is being recorded, NIST just recently published the four quantum algorithms for encryption that they're going to support or, or ratify for a standard. And those four algorithms are Crystals Kyber, Crystals Dilithium, Laser, and Sphinx. And those are the names of the algorithms. Sphinx Plus, I think is what it's called. So if you're interested in learning that, or if that's something that would apply to your job role, there's essentially going to be white papers NIST will have available to you to read about how each of those algorithms work, what their differences are, when you would leverage one over the other, etc. So that is an available option, and that is a very normal part of our learning experience. The second type of learning is auditory learning. And auditory learning is what you're doing right now. You're listening to this podcast, maybe in your car, perhaps you're at the gym listening on your phone, or, or you're listening while you're working outside, etc. Auditory learning is done in classrooms as well, as you have a teacher in front of a classroom and they're usually providing some sort of lecture. In college, this was very common where you'd have someone sit in front of the class and, and recite a lecture or read a book that would correspond to what they're writing on the board. And the two are supposed to play nice together. Visual learning lets people see things. Auditory learning lets them hear and have explanations to those written words on, on the blackboard. Uh, what I would do when I worked in the city and I'd have to commute and you know, I haven't had to drive into my job on a regular basis for several years now. and uh, But when I did, the commute was pretty extensive. Uh, it was about an hour and 10 to hour and 20 minutes to go in to the city. And it was about an hour and 40 to two hours to come home due to traffic. So what I would do is I would take YouTube videos that had verbal components to them. And I would record those, put them in the ability to read in my car, be it Bluetooth or even in the old days as CD, right? And I would play that on my way to work and on my way back. So I would learn technology topics while I was in the car. And that would allow me to study virtually every day because I could study on the weekends more robustly on my own time when I didn't have to work 
But if I was working, I could listen to an auditory lesson for an hour and change on the way to work. And then I would come home and listen to another one on my way back. So I would get two and a half, three hours of studying every day. And, and that worked out very well. Now, fortunately for me, I'm a pretty solid auditory learner. Maybe you're more of a visual learner, but it certainly doesn't hurt to, to leverage this topic. So if you have a means, if you have a long drive and you're trying to study for an exam or you're trying to study something even not IT related, this might be a good plan for you. So that's auditory learning. The third type of learning is what we call kinesthetic learning. I know that's a big word, but kinesthetic learning means learning by doing. And this is why YouTube, I think, has become so popular because YouTube combines all three of these in a way where you can watch someone from a visual perspective do a task, you can listen to them explain it, and then you can pause the video and do it yourself in real time while you watch someone else perform that same task. So you can pause, catch up to where they are, unpause, you know, progress. So you can follow along and learn new skills as someone else does it. And kinesthetic learning when we're young isn't as successful as we get older. But as adults, most adults learn by far more by doing than they do auditorily and visually. And by contrast, young children learn far more tactile things. They learn visually, they learn auditorily. They're seeing, they're hearing, they're touching. You know, if you've had kids, you've seen the baby take the, the block and put it in their mouth and, you know, interact with it. They're, they're using their senses for the first time or for, you know, early times in their life. And they're developing those. And that's how they're inputting information into their brain. So that is also why you, you have the classroom setting for most education systems and the United States and abroad. You have a person who's dictating, you have a person with a blackboard or a dry erase board. And then for kinesthetic learning, they give you homework. So they say, here is the lecture, here is a visual copy of that lecture, now go do it. So those are the three ways that most human beings assimilate information. And you'll realize very quickly that certain topics lend themselves to specific types of learning. Mathematics is very visual for most people. So if I write, you know, 146 times 18 on a blackboard, it's far easier for students to grasp that concept by watching and seeing me do that. Whereas if I take that visual aid away and just recite the same math problem verbally, it's far more challenging for people to do math auditorily than it is having them see that problem on a board. By contrast, learning music is an example of all three of these things. Auditorily, you need to be able to listen for your pitch to see if you're out of tune or if you're flat or sharp or if you're, you know, what you're making in terms of sound in an instrument is wrong. You need to be able to see sheet music and learn notes and how to read that sheet music. And then kinesthetically, you need to learn how to combine the notes together on a piano for chords or building muscle aperture to play a trumpet or a trombone. And those are all physical things. So you have to be able to actually do that in practice to get good at it. So all three are used in terms of music, and that's a lot of the reasons why you see a lot of folks indicate, well, arts are maybe not necessarily the most lucrative career paths in most cases, but they do develop all three of these means to assimilate information, and this may help them learn other subjects and other information faster because music and the arts are, are helping them develop the ability to learn faster. In terms of how to extrapolate this into the tech industry, 
these are the ways that we do it. So in terms of visual learning, we have a lot of white papers that we read. There's documentation, and, and documentation is an overall weakness, in my opinion, in the IT industry, uh, particularly in corporate America, where you know results and getting projects done are more important than often documenting them. So documentation is neglected a lot of times, but if you have good documentation, it's very valuable and makes your life very easy in terms of fixing things or, or reconfiguring items. Uh, there's also man pages. Man pages are usually explicit to Linux, but those are manual pages and you're you're able to review certain syntax and how things work within a Linux file system. Uh, in terms of audio, a lot of times what we do in the IT world are listen to podcasts like the one you're listening to now uh, to either get in the industry or learn current events in the industry or listen to interviews with other experts to see their opinions and perspectives on the industry. And that's a definite means to learn. Uh, YouTube videos provide both audio and visual. So that's an option to get both. And then take that YouTube video and use it kinesthetically by practicing configuring your own lab equipment and doing example labs that might be able to help you develop skill sets. So that's what we do in terms of how humans learn and how we apply it in the cybersecurity world when you're just getting started. The next topic I wanna to chat about is how learning gets muddled or how, how learning gets derailed. We've all been in a classroom situation where we have that one teacher or that one professor who just doesn't resonate with us. We don't learn anything from them. And I wanna kind of give my opinions or, or my perspectives as to why that's the case using some statistical data and how that can be avoided when you're learning cybersecurity yourself. So in the previous section, we went over how human beings learn new information. In this section, I want to review interpersonal communication skills and how deficiencies in interpersonal communication skills can hinder our learning. And it may explain why that high school teacher or college professor you had years ago failed to reach you in a certain subject. In 1971, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Albert Morabian of UCLA Psychology wrote a book called Silent Messages. And within Silent Messages is one of the communication world's most cited models, and that is the 73855 model. The model is a way to break down the interpersonal communication process into three categories and provide each of those categories with a weighted value that determines its importance for communication. The first category is spoken words, the second is the verbal tone, and the third is body language. And through Dr. Morabian's studies, what he found out was that 7% of the communication stack is comprised of spoken words, 38% is the verbal tone used, and 55% of interpersonal communications are affected by body language. So what does this mean for us here in the cybersecurity world when we're trying to learn things? Well, what it means is that if you're learning in a physical setting, if you're learning from a classroom professor, or if you're learning in a conference, the body language and demeanor of that presenter is the single most important thing on that learning stack. When I was a corporate trainer, I did use this to my advantage in almost every class I taught. So one of the things that I did deliberately was I would move around my classroom while I was presenting. I memorized the entire training manual from cover to cover, and I would just move around the classroom so I didn't have to be chained to a podium or a desk 
to present my material. And the purpose of doing that was twofold. One is that if I move around a lot, my classroom students had to follow me with their eyes. They had to look at me and watch me move around and it kept them engaged. And the second thing was if I'm verbalizing and providing the lesson auditorily, it made them hear me from different angles. They would hear me from behind them to the left or directly in front of them or over to the right-hand side, just at maybe two o'clock or maybe directly behind them. And it kept their ears engaged without them really knowing it. It was almost like if you took an audio recording and made it binaural where it would spin from left to right as you listen to the audio. It would obviously keep your ears engaged because it was changing. So the goal was to keep my students engaged with that. And truth be told, it also allowed me to kind of maneuver around and see if they were doing what they needed to be doing, you know, taking notes and following along, that kind of thing. The second thing that I want to mention here is that I also tried to keep my classrooms very casual. Uh, training can be a very stoic and rigid process. A lot of times people are going into new higher training classrooms in a way that they're apprehensive. So the more casual I made it, the more people felt at home. And the more people felt at home, the more comfortable they were asking questions or engaging in conversations about the job. And my job as a trainer is much the same as my mission with this podcast. It was to provide those people the best opportunity for them to succeed once they left that classroom. And the goal with this podcast, similarly, is to provide cybersecurity students with the best possible chance to succeed in the career path in, in getting a role in this industry. So I kind of correlate the two together. Uh, but the bottom line is that body language is the most important thing in a physical setting. In terms of a podcast, it's the tone of the, the, the verbalization of it. And obviously my tone is relatively animated when I speak to you guys here and my classroom settings were identical. I was very you know, engaging. I wanted it to be you know, kind of fun and not boring. You know, we've all seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Ben Stein trying to teach the classroom in that horrifying monotone voice of his and how disengaged the students were. And I think that perhaps at this point, when you hear these first two categories and you know, the words are 7%, which is, you know, obviously not meaningless, but it's very minimal in conjunction with actual learning. The words are just kind of the vehicle that carries the message. And in fact, I found if you use overly verbose and, and complicated terminology, it actually turns the audience off. It can confuse people and it's better to keep it as simple as possible. So that is the 73855 rule. And I think you can see where I'm going with this, but my suspicion is the teachers that failed to reach you in previous endeavors, be it college or high school, failed in one or more of these items. Perhaps they've been teaching the same subject for 15, 20 years, and they're just bored with it. So their tone is disengaged or they're very rigid and very strict and very, you know, intimidating. So the classroom is very quiet and very stoic because the professor or the teacher is. Uh, or you get a combination of both where the teacher is just absolutely agitated that they have to do anything at all. And I, I have a story for this. Uh, once upon a time in college, this was a long time ago, I had a math class. It was 10 in the morning. I always hated getting up to go to this class. Uh, and I would get there. And most of the time I was on time, but you know, occasionally I would be late. And I found that uh, this professor didn't start the class until 10.05 every day because what he would do is you would get into class and he'd be sitting at his desk drinking coffee, reading the newspaper. And the way his class went is always the same. You would get into the class between 10.05 and 10.10. He would get up out of his desk. He would pick up the math textbook. He would open to the page we were working on. He would 
put that book on a podium and read verbatim the chapter out of a math book. He would then assign a, a range of problems that were correspondent to what he just read, be it 1 to 20, 1 to 25, all the evens, whatever. He would close that math textbook, he would sit back in his desk, and he would drink his coffee and read his paper. His class lasted 10 minutes of actual study and actual oral dictation, and the class was actually an hour long. It was like 10 to 11. And the rest of the class time, people would just do the problems. Nobody spoke to this man. Nobody interacted with this man. Even if you did, he, he was disinterested in trying to assist you. The reality of this situation was that man did not want to teach. Or if he did, he, he did not come across as he wanted to teach. So the tone of the class was, you know, he's reading a book verbatim. His body language is that he's disinterested. And when you put those things together, you lose people. And you, you just get questions about their the, what information they're providing you. Does it have any value? Because they clearly don't seem to have any value with it. They're not even you know, trying to help you understand what it is. They're checking a box. And in the education world, I classify those kind of people as information regurgitators. There is a marked difference between someone who's actually teaching you something and an information regurgitator. I can get Google to regurgitate information to me. If I just take a, a speech to text editor, I can have it do that, right? That's auditory learning. You know, I'm, I'm listening to what's being said. If I go to the book, I can read what this is, you know, what, what he's providing to me. But there's absolutely no kinesthetic learning at all. There's no learning by doing. And as adults, we crave that. We need that type of learning. You have to have that engagement. To, to grasp concepts. And obviously I learned very little to nothing from that class because the man was not invested. So when you're in the same position, and the reason I tell you this story is these are the challenges to learning. Auditory learning shuts down with a bad tone and visual learning shuts down with bad body language. People don't want to read. They don't want to you know, interface and, and even kinesthetic learning shuts down with bad body language. So you lose both in that regard because nobody wants to go up and ask this guy to, to demonstrate anything or you know, there, there's no comfortability level to have that interface. And that's why the communication process breaks down. And this happens for a lot of reasons. You know, teachers can be stressed out, burnt out. You know, they may not be interested in the topic they're, they're studying. And this happens. And there's not a lot you can do as a student to overcome this in terms of what they're doing. So my recommendation to beat this is to change your perception and mindset as to how you can overcome it. So one of the things I recommend 100% is taking good notes. In my next section, I'm gonna go over note-taking strategies, but that keeps you actively engaged. And the guy that was reading directly out of the book, take whatever notes that you can take out of that, that setting and, and go that route. When this gentleman was teaching, this was 20 plus years ago, in today's era, you have the option to take that lesson and extrapolate it over to YouTube, extrapolate it over to Wolfram Alpha, to take whatever learning site you wanna leverage and engage with it. So if you're finding your professor or teacher to be insufficient to learn what you're trying to learn, you have more options to you available now than ever in human history. Google is your friend, use it. Google this information, find more study materials for your, your consumption. And finally, you're going to find that even in the tech world, uh, tech teaching suffers from some of these things too, uh, even in YouTube. You're going to go to YouTube and you're going to find YouTube videos with poor engagement. The, per the guy teaching is just regurgitating data or the lighting's terrible and you can't see what he's doing or the audio sucks. There's a hum or there's some sort of 
truck in the background causing a distraction. Or in some cases, you'll have the presenter be from a different country and their English isn't perfect, so it's hard to understand. Uh, but the biggest challenge that I find in tech videos on YouTube when you try to overcome perhaps a poor teacher is the curse of knowledge. And what the curse of knowledge is, it's a concept where tech people have been doing a specific task or a particular tech function for so long that they take for granted the very basics of that tech stack. And they do so without even intending to do it. But the end result is they're skipping steps that are vital for success and they confuse people. And that provides poorly constructed examples, disjointed lessons, and, and confused people. And one of my intentionalities with this podcast is to provide the first, say, 10 episodes in a very digestible way. And I want to avoid the curse of knowledge. So you've noticed, in, if you've listened to my previous episodes, that there's very minimal tech talk in these first handful of episodes, and that's done intentionally. I want to set the foundation and give people a strategy before we start diving into more technical topics. So any feedback that you folks have, I'll take. It's most appreciated. And if you're finding this too technical, let me know. So now we understand maybe why that professor in high school or college struggled to reach us, but how do we resolve it? What solutions can we manifest from understanding, well, their tone's not very good, they're, they don't seem interested, and their body language shows they're just bored. How, how do I overcome this? Well, my recommendations are twofold here. One is that in 2022, the recording time of this podcast, never in the history of humankind have we had more available resources to supplement learning. You have all sorts of free learning platforms. YouTube is a phenomenal resource. There are podcasts like this one and others out there that can help teach you whatever you're attempting to learn, be it you know, networking or you know, databases or cybersecurity attacks, anything that you're looking to learn, there's likely a video or a podcast or something that you can leverage to understand it. There's paid online learning platforms from Udemy to Skillshare to Coursera to LinkedIn Learning. There is an endless supply of this stuff. So if you're in a college class or you're not even in a college class, you're just learning off of YouTube, find a presenter or a video or something that you feel comfortable with that you can leverage. If you're in school and you're struggling with this, I have a second strategy for you. Not only can you leverage ancillary videos and other sources, but my recommendation is if you're in a classroom, you find that the, the teacher is not very good, you want to employ active note taking. And I know that sounds silly, but we don't teach our kids in schools how to take notes appropriately. So the next section I want to review is my recommendation on how to take notes and a strategy on how to study once you take them. Something I think we really study with here in the United States is teaching students how to take notes. I think we take it for granted. I think it's something that isn't well defined. And in this section of the podcast today, I want to go over three different strategies on how to take notes and which one I think is the most optimal. So if you get a good teacher or not, something to keep you engaged with the actual content is actually taking good notes. And there are three ways to do that. One is the transcription method of note-taking, which is essentially writing down everything the professor or educator says. 
And this can be daunting. Uh, in some cases, the amount of verbal data that they provide is overwhelming, and it's hard to maintain for long periods of time. And oftentimes it's inefficient. You might be writing down things that just aren't relevant to what you need to study. The second item or means to take notes is leveraging keywords. And keywords are terminologies, phrases, vocabulary words. Uh, oftentimes in college, you'll see students highlight portions of text, and that is a keyword strategy. And this is easier to do for long periods of time, but it's very easy to miss important pieces of data, and it might be hard to leverage later without context. You might have highlighted a phrase or a, highlighted a, a sentence, and you're not sure why. The one that I like and I recommend to folks that ask me is the outline method. And the outline method is kind of a combination of the two previous methods, where instead of writing down everything that's said, you write down key topics and keywords and phrases, and then you put down supporting information to each of those keywords and phrases. And in my opinion, this is the best way to take notes because it's not as time consuming as the transcription method, and it has fewer holes and gaps than the keyword section. It's also, a nice way to keep things organized. If you use a heading and then you have subheadings that correspond to that, it's very easy to understand, okay, this is the key topic, and then these are the supporting phrases or supporting concepts that I need to keep in mind with it. Something else that I'd like to touch on here is in terms of technology, most cybersecurity and even just IT tests in general will provide what they have as an exam topic list. They'll like have a, a list of technologies or, or means to configure technology that they expect you to know for that particular test. So in those situations, this is my recommendation uh, when you wanna attack a certification test or you wanna attack a test, even if it's not tech, uh, and you get a study guide where the professor or educator says, okay, here's what's gonna be on the test. These are the concepts you need to know. This is what I recommend you do. The first thing that you do is you take a list of all of the topics that could potentially be on a test. And what you do is you rate each of those items zero through three. And here's what I mean by zero through three. If you read a topic or you read something that you understand very well and feel very comfortable with explaining, or that you can feel that you're gonna answer well on a test, you mark it as a three. Anything that you feel vaguely familiar with but wanna kind of supplement a little more information with, you represent as a two. Anything that you don't know much about but need to know for the exam is a one. And then anything that isn't related enough, you know, if it's not part of what you think you need for the exam or, or to study, or it's something that the professor has indicated won't be on the test, you mark as a zero. And the way that I recommend going through this is anything that is a, a one is the stuff you start with first because you don't feel comfortable at all with it and you need to study that material first because it's the stuff that's the biggest gap. And then I would take any topics or headings that you have a two and study those second. And then anything that's a three, I would just review very surface, you know, don't spend a ton of time on and review those at the end. And that way you're supplementing in a priority where your gaps are. So like say for example, you're studying for the Security Plus exam and you're not super familiar what cross-site scripting is. You've heard of it, but you don't know much about it. I'd put that as a one. And then you go down the list and you look at the next thing and you see DDoS. And DDoS sound, stands for deny, Distributed Denial of Service. And you know what that is. 
but you're not super familiar with it. You're not sure how it occurs or what examples of an attack look like. That's a two. And then you keep reading and you get to SQL injection where I'm taking SQL commands and I'm using it on a database to steal or get access to data I shouldn't have. And I'm very, very familiar with this. I know how to do it. I, I use it in my job. That would be a three. So what I would do in that situation is I don't know enough about cross-site scripting, scripting to pass this test. I need to go study that first. And then I'm going to review DDoS and I'm going to review how I can DDoS or what that is or how people perform DDoS attacks, what they use for it. Are they using network time protocol? Or are they using some other way? And then third, I, I know SQL injection really well. I'll review it you know, on a surface level, but I feel very comfortable that if I get questions on an exam, I'm going to be able to answer those. So that's the thought process that I recommend doing in terms of an IT exam. Uh, but you could use this in anything. Like if you're studying for your nurse practitioner exam, you could look at all the topics that you anticipate being on that exam and doing the exact same thing. And any topic is, is fair game here. Something else that I recommend doing if you're not in a position where you have an outline or you're not sure about what's on a test is I would start with topics that you believe would be on a test and do something called mind map. And what a mind map is, is you take a blank sheet of paper and you take a keyword and you put it in the middle and you circle that keyword. And then anything that's relevant to that keyword, you draw lines off of that circle and you add a box or a circle to it that's relevant to it. So let me give you an example. So let's take the security example I just provided in Security Plus. And let's say I want Security Plus attacks. And DDoS would be on the list. That's definitely an attack. Cross-site scripting would be an attack. That's on the list. Server-side request forgery, that's on the list. Uh, what else? Uh, there could be a ton of these, right? So you just put them on a list. I just rattled off a few. And as you go, you keep diverging more and more information. So with cross-site scripting, I'm going to put down all of the relevant data that goes off with cross-site scripting. With SQL injection, I'm going to, you know, write off all the relevant topics off of SQL injection. And I'm going to do this for all of my particular topics that I think might be on the exam. And then when I go back to the mind map, I'm going to do exactly what I did with that study guide with the mind map. I'm going to rate things one, two, and three, or a zero. If I don't think what I've put on that mind map is relevant, I mark it as a zero. It's probably not going to be on my test. I move on. But if it's something that I do think is going to be on that test and I don't know it very well, I want to study those particular topics. So mind maps are just a way to generate that study guide if you don't have it. And those are the two ways that I recommend taking notes or, the, or pushing it. I recommend doing outlines if you're in a classroom and you're listening some, to someone dictate. And I recommend mind maps if you are not sure what's going to be on the test and you have to brainstorm it. So what I'll do is I will include a mind map as a linkable option in this podcast. You guys have an example of it because me verbalizing, it's not, I think, doing it justice. So I'll, I'll provide that for you guys as an addendum to this podcast. So you get an idea of what it looks like. In terms of studying, I have an option for you that I want to give you, and I think this is the most effective way to study. This is how I passed my CISSP in less than a month, and I think this is the way that most people should study. Because again, the same with note-taking. I think studying is something we just assume students know how to do, and I don't think that there's a strategy provided. Most schools have never given me a strategy to study, so I want to take the time you know, five minutes to teach you something that I think will be very beneficial when you're studying for an exam or trying to learn something new. 
So with that, the final portion of today's podcast is teaching you the Pomodoro method of studying. In the late 1980s, a gentleman by the name of Francesco Cirillo was in the process of studying for his final exams at university. He found himself struggling to focus on the topics at hand and needed a way to keep himself accountable. So what he chose to do was wander into his mother's kitchen and grab the kitchen timer off the stove. He set that timer to 10 minutes and said, I am going to dedicate this 10 minutes to one topic and one topic only. That timer was in the shape of a tomato, and tomato in Italian is pomodoro. And thus the pomodoro method of studying was born. In today's era, the Pomodoro method is usually divided in increments of 25 minutes of studying with a five-minute break in between. And Francesco's methodology was very simple but powerful. The idea with the studying methodology is to pick a topic and study that topic for 25 minutes uninterrupted with a timer set. Once that timer goes off, you take a five-minute break doing something else in the technology world, I recommend doing something away from screens. Take a walk, pet your cat, do something that's not in front of a computer screen. Once those five minutes go back, you do repeat the process. You set the timer for 25 minutes and you study one topic in depth for those 25 minutes with no interruptions. You do these in successions of four. So the goal here would be to set a two hour time block, do four what they call Pomodoros, which are those 25 minute increments, and then take five minute breaks in between. Once you've done four of those rotations, the recommendation is to take a 15 to 20 minute break and then start the process over, assuming you have the time. And what I like about this studying methodology is a lot. There's three main things I like about it. Number one is that 25 minutes and then a five minute break allows you to get some quality time dedicated to a topic, but it's not overly saturated. The five minute break lets your brain reset and studies have shown this methodology nets far greater retention of data than brain dumping for endless hours on nauseam. Number two is that it's scalable. You can choose to do one Pomodoro for 25 minutes and then take a five minute break and then do something else and come back. Or you can set a four hour time frame and do eight of these and continue your studies in a longer time frame. So you have the ability to scale this as you need. And the third thing that I like about this methodology is that it's very easy to understand. You take a timer, you set it to a specific time frame, you focus and you concentrate on a specific topic for 25 minutes, and then you break. It's very easy to apply this to the notes you just took. So if you have a mind map and your mind map says, okay, security plus attacks, and the first thing you see is look, it's DDoS. I'm going to study DDoS right now for 25 minutes. So you study DDoS for 25 minutes and then the timer goes off. Okay, next topic. I move on to cross-site scripting. I study that for 25 minutes, then I break for five. This allows you to take the notes that you've just built previously and apply it to a tactical way to study. And this is how I passed my CISSP in less than a month. I rated all of the actual topics within the CISSP, three, two, one, or zero. I took the ones that were one. I started with those. I moved on to the twos. I started with those and I reviewed everything that I thought was a three, meaning I had, I felt good about it. 
And then when I took that test, yes, some of the questions are worded weird. The The CISSP is designed to make you fail. It's it's kind of a trick test. It's worded wonky. It's uh, and a lot of times it's lawyer speak. And the perspective of the, of the test is that you're the CISO of whatever company you represent. So your decisions are business-based, not necessarily tech-based. So you have to keep that in mind. But assuming you understood that and knew the information that they were going to ask you, studying large volumes of data in an efficient way becomes far more manageable using this methodology than other study methodologies that I've seen. So this is the one that I recommend you do. Take really good notes in either outline form or take your exam topics and take each exam topic and say, I'm gonna study this for 25 minutes and then I'm gonna take a break. If I still need more another 25 minute session, I'm gonna continue with that for another 25 minutes. I'm gonna take a five minute break. And I think it's important to get away from screens. I don't recommend taking a 25 minute study session and then going on your phone and you know checking out Facebook. My recommendation is get up, walk around, do something you know else, listen to music for five minutes, pet your cat or interact with your spouse or whatever you wanna do in that five minute time. I just recommend it be away from screens. This is the most effective study method I've ever seen. It's simple, it's easy to implement, and I think you'll get a significant amount of value using it. So this concludes the podcast for today. I want to briefly review what we've gone over here. In terms of how people learn, the three ways folks learn is through visual, auditory, and kinesthetic methods. In terms of adults, kinesthetic learning is by far the most important, meaning learning by doing. So in context of cybersecurity, I recommend you have a home lab and do kinesthetic labs and configurations to get that hands-on keyboard experience. In terms of interpersonal communications, Dr. Albert Morabian's rule is the 73855 rule, indicating body language and tone are vastly more superior to your learning experience and your interpersonal communication skills than your words. So that if you have a teacher or a professor who is struggling with their tone or struggling with their presentation, they're rigid or don't seem very welcoming, the best thing that you can do is take active notes so that you're investing in yourself and your education and supplementing through one of the myriad of options you have, be it YouTube, be it Coursera, Udemy, Skillshare, Pinterest, Facebook, however you wanna go about attacking it, there are options today more than ever before to supplement a poor or an ineffective teacher. In terms of note-taking, I recommend using outline notes. Those allow you to take topics and then supplement those topics under it. It's kind of the best of both worlds of transcription and keywords. Keywords, I think, are too basic. They don't have enough detail. Transcription, when you're trying to write down everything a teacher says or everything a video says is just too hard and not efficient. So I think the outline is the happy medium. Doing mind maps is a very good way to build a course outline or a study outline if you don't have one provided to you. Uh, that is by taking a primary topic and then divulging that topic into subtopics and then rating those based on your comfortability level or familiarity with them. And finally, in terms of studying, I would take those notes you've made, take those ratings of those skills that you've provided, and then use the Pomodoro method to study. Spend 25 minutes with a timer, focus study, uninterrupted time, get that information into your brain, and then take a five-minute break, and then continue with another 25 minutes. Studies have shown that the retention levels are vastly superior and that you won't burn out as fast and that the concept itself is very easy to implement with this rating system we have above. So I want to thank you for listening here tonight. I invite you to come back to our next podcast, but until then, have a fantastic day 
and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.